0: That's perfect. Well, church, I want to invite you to stand now as we read God's word together. Our passage, surprise, surprise, will be Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The word of the Lord, church, you may be seated. Well, my son, uh, my old son, Elijah, he turns 12 this week. And so yesterday we were out at Simmons Arena to see the hogs play. And uh, I took a number of his buddies there, and we just got to celebrate the game. And and while there, I had kind of one of those classic parent moments where I, I looked at my son, who's about to turn 12, and I just said, how is that possible? Like, where did the time go? And, and of course, in my mind, I, I go back to his birth because his birth, in a way, feels like it was yesterday. It was December 21st. 2010, St. Luke's Hospital, San Antonio, Texas. And after 13 hours of labor and two hours of pushing, and maybe an extra motivated and, and slightly too enthusiastic birthing coach husband, <laughs> and a couple epidurals, my heroine of a wife gave birth to our son. And I remember as Elijah was born, you know, I'm in the room, it's just such a crazy moment. And I remember thinking, of the, like, a couple of thoughts, right? My first thought was, man, I'm a dad. Like, that's my son. And then and my second thought was, like, hey, why does he look like that? Like, why is his head shaped like a pyramid? Wait, wait, I love him, though. You know? And then as he comes out and he's crying and he's, you know, just exposed to the elements. For the first time, I think I had this thought that probably a lot of new parents have where you you just see the utter dependence this baby has for life. Like they can do nothing. They just, just cry and scream, look for mom. And it was so humbling To see that. And and I always think about that this time of the year, not just because of the birth of my son Elijah, but because it reminds me of the miracle that is Christmas. It reminds me of the birth of Jesus. I mean, the fact that God came to earth as a human is astonishing in itself, the fact that he came as a baby is completely just incredible to fathom. Like how in the world? I have a tradition that I do every December and and I read the chapter on the incarnation from the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And in that chapter, there's one of my favorite just paragraphs that's ever been written. And it's Packer talking about the incarnation. And this is what he says. says, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. See, there's no day like Christmas because there's no event like the Incarnation. It is the miracle of miracles. It is the mystery of mysteries. And it is the event that will start the greatest movement that the world has ever seen. And this is a, a miracle and a mystery that we like, celebrate, that we reflect upon all year, but uniquely at this time of the year. Jim, do I sound off? Am I echoey? No? Half of y'all are saying yes, half of y'all are saying no, which is, does not help. <laughs> just say, so should I go to a handheld gym? Okay, I'm just going to keep talking. We're going to let it rip. So it, it's it's a miracle and a mystery that we contemplate all the time, but uniquely at this time of the year. Uniquely during this season of Advent. So with Christmas just one week away, what that means is Advent is now in its final week. We're in week four of Advent. And what we've been doing over the last month is camping out in this iconic passage of Luke chapter 2. And then looking at the four major themes of Advent through this passage, through the lens of it. So whether it be the hope that we have in Christ. Or the peace that we have in Christ. Or the joy that we have in Christ. And today we finish by looking at the theme of love. And the word love doesn't show up in Luke chapter 2, does it? It's not like, I mean, peace is there, joy is there, love is not there, but it's love that creates chapter 2. It's the love of God that writes the chapter, it's the love of God that we have anything to write about. And in particular, the love of God, which there's nothing greater than that. In and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 13, Paul writes what's probably the greatest section in human history on love. I mean, it's just mesmerizing. And, and at the end of chapter 13, he, he ends with these words, talking about the greatness of love. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest is love. The greatest of these is love, and the greatest of loves is the love of God. And this is what we're going to spend a few minutes reflecting upon this morning. And so as we've gone through this series, what I've tried to do most Sundays is we've kind of talked about how Jesus is our hope, or Jesus is our peace, or Jesus is our joy. And today I'm going to approach it a little bit differently. I really want to approach it through the lens of God more so, and God's love. So I really actually just want to talk less so about our love and more about God's love and how that comes to us, how that's reflected in the incarnation, in the miracle of Christmas. And so I'm going to talk about the love of God in three different ways. We're going to look at three different aspects of it. We're going to look at the love of God described, the love of God demonstrated, and the love of God reproduced. Okay, so it's the love of God described, the love of God demonstrated, and the love of God reproduced. Of, of all the apostles, I have a favorite. I don't know if you're supposed to say that, but I, there's, there's, a, there's an apostle who's always been close to my heart, and I make no apologies about it, and that is the apostle John. He's probably the youngest. He, um, he seems to have a unique relationship with Jesus, you know, kind of sits at his bosom. And he's an apostle that undergoes this huge transformation, right? Because he's the son of thunder who becomes the apostle of love. And if you study biblical Greek, like if you were to go to seminary and you you start in Koine Greek, the biblical Greek, the first book you're really going to get to, the first writer you're going to study is John. Because he has the simplest Greek. So whereas Paul is Ivy League, Paul is super educated with this expansive vocabulary and and Luke is the same way. John is not. John's a fisherman. John's blue collar with a rudimentary vocabulary. But what's beautiful is the things he writes about, the truths that he espouses are some of the most deep, powerful truths in all the Bible. And one of those profound Places where tr- is, truth is located is in 1 John 4, 8. It says, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. Hathios agape esten. God is love. Just profound, profound. Incredible and also a bit complicated. It's a bit complicated When you stop and think about it. I mean, what does it mean to say that God is love? What does it mean? And the problem is not in the truthfulness of the statement. The problem is in how one defines it. How one answers that question. Because many non-Christians, they may look at 1 John 4, 8, many people in our day, and they say, man, that's my favorite verse in the Bible. Like, I can quote that one like this. God is love. And And in that interpretation, what they're saying is, and because he's love, he, no he loves me no matter what I do, how I do it, no matter when I do it, no matter the context of it. He loves me. He just wants me to be happy. And so no matter what I do, he loves me because God is love. And so that's one interpretation. is that true? And then maybe on the other end, you have some Christians and, and who come to this place where they say, yeah, God is love. Yes, that's true. But, but. He is love if you believe the right things, say the right things, and do the right things, and live according to this certain code, which is almost always their way of doing things and their way of seeing things. And so they say, yes, God is love, but it's like caveat, 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 caveat. Well, is that true? Is that right? Then how am I to think about the love of God? If God is love, How am I to think about the love of God? And so I want to talk for a minute about the love of God described. And I want to look to a a book and and a theologian who's helped me kind of unpack this or think through this. It's a guy named D.A. Carson. And he wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And as part of that, what he did was he kind of laid out five different ways the love of God is expressed in the scriptures. And that we see the love of God. So God is always loving. God is love. But that love is going to be expressed in a few different ways. They, and, and even language gets in the way here. Think about this. I love my mom. And I love hamburgers. Right? That's obviously, we, there should be a difference between the two. And so even in the Greek, you've probably heard before, there's four words that they use for love. So you have agape, which is like this sacrificial love. You have phileo, phileo which is like a brotherly love, Philadelphia. You have storge, which is like a familial love. And you have eros, which is like an erotic love. So they even use different words to describe kind of these four different loves. And so what Carson does is he unpacks, what he sees as really these five avenues for the love of God. And so I want to briefly go through it because I want to describe this God of love as we look to see how Jesus demonstrates it. And these are the five ways And I'm paraphrasing because they're longer in the book. One is the unique love of God within the Trinity. So between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's known as intra-Trinitarian love. Okay? And then a second way is love, a providential love for creation. A love for creation. A third love is a love for all of humanity. Okay? A universal love for all of humanity. A fourth love is going to be a love for the elect or those who have been, who are redeemed. And then a fifth love is going to be a love that's connected to obedience, okay? And so these are going to be five loves that we're going to quickly kind of walk through as we describe the love of God. And first is the love that exists within the Trinity. Primarily, as the scripture writes, between the Father and the Son, Okay, And once again, who is the writer who unpacks this the most? It's the Apostle John. John's a Trinitarian tract. And so if you go read the Gospel of John, how many times does it talk about how the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Father sent the Son, and the Son is here to do the will of the Father. And the Father glorifies in the Son, and the Son honors and glorifies the Father. And they have this shared glory, And the Spirit glorifies the Son, which in turn glorifies the Father. The Father honors the Son, John 5, John 12. The Son honors the Father, John 5, John 8. And so their honor and glory are bound together in one another and overflow to all who believe. And so there's this beautiful love that begins within the Godhead, within the Father, Son, And Holy Spirit, as my professor put it, the gospel rolls back the heavens for humanity to peer into this self-giving love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about God is love, this is where love begins. And this is where love is gonna flow from. And everything's gonna flow out of the love that exists within the eternal Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a love that's shared within God and then a love that is shared with all that God has created, and so this love within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not just the love that that uh, it's not just where love begins or flows from; it's also why we exist at all. I mean, have you ever thought about the question of why do I exist? Not even just maybe why I exist, but why does anything exist? Why does anything exist? Well, it's an overflow of the love of God. It's an overflow of the love within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is now shared and develops into a love for all creation, which is the second one, right? The Bible does not explicitly state that God loves creation, but it's implicit in a number of the statements Jesus makes or even in the actions of God. I mean, think about the creation in general. Every day, what does God say? And it is good. So he delights in creation. There's a joy that God has in what he has created. It's the God who clothes the grass of the fields with the glory of wildflowers. It's the God who feeds the animals. It's the God who lovingly provides for the birds. It's God's providential care for creation that Jesus points to, to tell the disciples, and this is why you can trust in him. Remember that? Jesus says, look what God does for the birds. Look what God does in creation. Think about how God provides for them. What what more might he do for you? So he even points to God's love for creation as an illustration for God's provision and love for them. So there's a love that's expressed in creation. Thirdly, we have God's love for the crown jewel of creation, which is humanity. So however much God stands in judgment over the world, which he does, And he never does something outside of love, and that includes judgment. And that's a whole other thing to unpack, but I think judgment's even an expression of his love, okay? But even though he stands over the world in judgment, he still loves the world and the people in it. It does not remove his love. The God who will judge with fire is the same God who is slow to anger, who does not rejoice in the perishing of a single individual and so it's not incorrect to speak of God's love for all no matter who no matter where no matter when no matter whether they are following him at that time or not it is not incorrect to speak of God's love for them and John 3:16 says as much for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the word world there in the gospel of John and in John's writing, cosmos, it's not just the elect. There's a broader spectrum here that God's love touches, that's fulfilled in Christ, that he is a God of love. That being said, there is a peculiar and particular kind of love that is expressed by God towards his elect towards those who are in his family. Think of, um, and it's, it, it's a, it, this can sometimes be controversial and it's a mystery, but it's hard to argue whether we're talking about Israel or the church. So I can take you to a passage in, in Deuteronomy 7 where God is speaking about the nation of Israel and l- listen to what he says. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord, what? Loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And if we didn't get it, he repeats it three chapters later in Deuteronomy 10. It says, yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So what's fascinating about this? What is mind-blowing about this as you read Deuteronomy and it speaks about God choosing Israel is what is the thing that makes Israel distinctive? What is the thing that's going to set Israel apart from the other nations around them? It's not their morality. It's not their size. It's not their, how they're progressive in their thinking. It's not how they're technologically advanced. He says, it's that I love them. I love them. They're mine. He chose them. And so there's this unique affection that's the love of God expressed on the elect. And we see it also in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, it's primarily towards Israel. And the New Testament, we see expanded to the church, right? So think of another I've already read you 1 Corinthians 13, which is a classic passage for a wedding. Another classic passage for a wedding is Ephesians 5. Right? Husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. But listen to it again. Just listen to what it actually says. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's a sense where Christ died for the church uniquely, right? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We're talking about Jesus. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It's still talking about Christ in the church. That's what it's talking about. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. What's the passage really about? It's about Christ's love for the church because we are members of his body. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, once again, we say, it says, in love, he predestined. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved and so there's a there's another category of love that is placed upon those who are the elect and it's not to make one boastful or prideful or say we're so great it is a humbling thing because he loves you not because you're so great not because you're so smart not because you're so cool not because you have certain resources but because he loves you and doesn't go beyond that there's not another reason he loves me because no he loves you because he loves you period and so it's the love of God on the people of God and then fifthly We have the conditional love of God based upon obedience. Okay? So take Jude 21. Keep yourselves in God's love. Or um, Gospel of John chapter 15. If you obey my commands, you will remain, what? In my love. What's he talking about here? Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. What kind of love are we talking about? Well, it's not an intra-Trinitarian love. It's not a love with creation or for creation. It's not just uh, an unconditional love towards humanity or especially eternal love upon the elect. This is a relational love. This is a relational love that responds to fellowship and responds to obedience. And maybe the best illustration of it, even though it's a poor illustration, is like a, a parent and a child, Right? Like, I've I, I got five kids. I love my kids. And I love them on their best day is their worst day. Like, I love them. They're my kids. Nothing will ever change that. But there's going to be a difference in how that love is expressed or received or the fellowship of that love, depending upon whether they're in obedience or rebellion. Right? If they're walking in obedience to what I'm saying, there's going to be a love that's connected to that. And if they rebel against me, then there's going to be a fellowship dynamic that's going to be connected to that. And so there is a love that is conditional on obedience, but it's not God's eternal love for you. Does that make sense? And so what's my point? My point is not to confuse you. My point is to help you think and understand that this is a concept that is nuanced, that's big. I love how Carson puts it at the end of this section. He says, it is easy to see what will happen if any one of these five biblical ways of talking about the love of God is absolutized and made exclusive, right? If you only focus on one love, if you only focus on love number five, God only loves you if you do what I say. It's a deficient view of God. If you only focus on love number three, God loves me no matter what I do, when I do it, how I do it, and even if I love him. It's a deficient view of the love of God. God only loves the elect a deficient view of the love of God. See what I'm saying? You have to see the bigger picture to get a full understanding of who God is and what it means to say that God is love. So is it make it absolutely exclusive or made the controlling grid by which the other ways of talking about the love of God are relativized? Christian faithfulness entails a responsibility to grow in our grasp of what it means to confess that God is love. And so, whereas this understanding of the love of God can be somewhat complicated, the demonstration of his love is so clear in Luke chapter 2. The demonstration of his love is so powerful in the incarnation. It just blows the categories up and it fulfills all of them. So even if you think of these five different categories that we just walked through, think of how the incarnation just slams and just breathes life into all five of those. intra-Trinitarian love. The source of all love, where the Father sends the Son, but the Son willingly goes. He says, he, "And John ten, he says, I came to give. Him, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own on my own regard." He willingly comes as a baby. God, the Son, and the Trinitarian love expressed in the sending of the Son. It's beautiful. Beautiful picture of it. The love of creation. We talked about a few weeks ago uh, this peace and how God will one day, when Christ returns, bring shalom, bring peace throughout all of what? All of creation. That there will be peace across the board, not just between you and me or us and God, but in creation. Finally fulfilling his mandate, it is good in the return to Eden that will come through Christ in his coming. Love for the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Who's the whoever? It's whoever. It's whoever. That in Christ, God has declared his love for the people of the world, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What about uh, this unique affection upon His chosen people. What did Jesus come as people? He came as a Jew. He didn't come as an Amalekite, an Amorite, a Jebusite. He came as an Israelite, son of David, son of Abraham, heir to the throne in time and space. He's uniquely a Jew because that's what God wanted. And so there's a unique Jewish flavor to our entire faith because that's what God chose. And there's a unique grace that we receive through Jesus as his beloved, as his bride, as the church, that we share in that grace as the elect. And then fifthly, God models, Jesus models for us obedience with the Father, right? This is what it looks like. This is what life of, uh, I willingly do that which the, all I do is what I hear the Father tell me. I do nothing on my own accord, but only what the Father speaks. He is modeling for us an obedience in the incarnation to God the Father. It's the love of God demonstrated in Christ Jesus our Lord, uniquely in the incarnation. As Charles Wesley wrote, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. What kind of God is willing to do this? What kind of God is willing to travel such a distance? I'm not just talking about from heaven to earth. I'm talking about from before time and space to a baby. What kind of God is willing to do that? It's unlike any other God that that has ever been presented to humanity. There's no other religious structure, religious system, or religious belief that compares to the incarnation. There's nothing like it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, the incarnate deity. Who would do this? A God who is love. Go back to 1 John. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love in this. The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the birth of Jesus that will one day culminate in his death and his resurrection is the greatest demonstration of his love. It is a blinking light, if there ever was one. It's a siren. It is, this is the love of God. And you can't get away from it. And it's right here in the incarnation, because he had to enter into humanity in order to redeem it. Corey Tenboom says these words Who can add to Christmas? The perfect motive is that God so loved the world, the perfect gift is that he gave his only son. The only requirement is to believe in him and the reward of faith is eternal life, is everlasting life. Who can add to Christmas? It's the love of God demonstrated in the birth of a child. So we have it described, we have it demonstrated, and let's close by looking at the love of God reproduced. The love of God reproduced. When we receive this love, when we embrace this love, when we rest in this love, it is reproduced in us reproduced in us. In many ways, the Christian life involves glorifying God by imaging him through the receiving of his love. Because isn't his grace just a form of his love? I mean, that's, we receive his grace because it is love. And so when I receive his love and I'm transformed by his grace, I image him and glorify him on earth as his trophy of grace. someone redeemed by his love. And so I I receive it, and then it's reproduced in me. I was driving Luke to basketball practice the other night, and, you know, it gets dark like at 2.47 p.m. or whatever. And so we're driving down the road, and he goes, Dad, how did they get all those lights on the road coming up from the pavement? I said, those aren't lights. Those are like reflectors. So they don't, they don't produce any light. You don't produce any light. How do they light up? Well, I said, well, the, the headlights hit it and, it. and it receives that light. And then it reflects that light to those around them. So I, could, I said, it's kind of like the moon. Well, how does the moon receive? Well, then we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I got to go read Wikipedia real fast. And then I'll tell you, right? But this idea of, they don't produce their own light. They receive and reflect what is given to them. And that's really the Christian life. So you are only able to give that which you receive. And if you do not receive God's love for whatever reason or barrier that you've put up, it can't be reproduced in you. The only thing that's reproduced in you is, a, is something fleshly. It's not the love of God. It's not the fruit of the spirit of Galatians 5, which is how we're called to be. Remember John 13, I give you a new command, love one another. As I've loved you, you are to love one another. This is how all will know that you are my disciples. And this is also how our text in 1 John 4 concludes. Let's look at that. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, so you're loved. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. There's a love that's reproduced because it's received. And we give that which we receive. And so God's love is real. And the way it's reproduced is that it's received that it's embraced. And one of the most beautiful places we see that is in the manger, right? It's in the birth of a savior, the gift of a child, the dawn of a king, who through his life will bring hope. Through his life will bring peace. Through his life will bring joy. And it's all from his love. It's all rooted in the never-ending, unbending, divinely sending love of God. For his law, is love, his gospel, is peace, and his love could not be any clearer than on that first Christmas morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your love. And while we don't fully understand it, nor will we ever fully exhaust it, we fall at our knees because of it. And we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you, you you love us. And you don't have to. And all the times where we feel like we are undeserving of your love, you love us. Because that is who you are. That is your character. And what a beautiful thing it is to be made in the image of a God of love who loves us in our darkest moments, in our broken places, and by his love draws us back to himself. And God, we thank you for the unique expression of your love that is Christmas, the unique expression of your love that is the baby in the manger, Christ the King. And so as we are seven days away from celebrating, commemorating this miraculous birth, Father, we receive your miraculous love, which transforms us from the inside out. And we pray that it may overflow, just like it overflowed From Father, Son, and Spirit unto your people, may it overflow from us unto those around us. May it be reproduced. Father, we thank you again, and we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.